Welcome to the Fine Line Podcast. I'm Emily Gold. And I'm Liz Willette Daniels. As longtime veterans of restaurants and the wine importing and distribution business, we wanted to learn how the people we admire balance their love of food and wine with their mental and physical health. It's not always an easy journey. Mm-mm. If you are liking this podcast, please do rate, review, and subscribe. And please stay tuned after this episode for a few minutes of mindfulness with Kathy Hoya from A Balanced Glass. Enjoy! Carlton McCoy Jr. earned the title of Master Sommelier in 2013 at just 28 years old. He was one of the youngest people and the second African-American to earn this prestigious title. Carlton worked in revered institutions such as Thomas Keller's Per Se, Marcus Samuelson's Aquavit, Tom Colicchio's Craft Steak in New York, and most recently as wine director at the Little Nell in Aspen, before being named president and CEO of Heights Cellar in December 2018. In 2020, Carlton was named managing partner of Lawrence Wine Estates, overseeing the purchase of Burgess Cellars, Stony Hill Vineyards, the Haynes Vineyard, and the historical Wildwood Vineyard in Rutherford. In this new role, Carlton supports each estate in their aspirations to craft elegant, nuanced, and terroir-driven wines sourced from naturally farmed estate vineyards. Carlton is also a co-founder of the Roots Fund, a nonprofit that focuses on creating educational and employment opportunities for our BIPOC community. Carlton, Thanks welcome. Thanks for joining <laughs> us. We're so happy to chat with you. Hi, it's, uh, it's great to see you all. So tell us how you got into the wine business. Tell us about your journey. Uh, sure, yeah. So, you know, I um, I didn't grow up in, in a place that had wine. Um, so my first real interaction with wine was in culinary school. I got a, a scholarship to go to the CIA that I won in a cooking competition in high school. Um, and um, What did you cook? Well, I was sort of so everyone cooked the same thing. That was the thing. Uh. I wanted Thing and they judged execution uh it was like a three course it was a very like classical french i didn't know that at the time but <laughs> i very classical french i was in high school so i didn't know that uh, but we uh the, the wine course at ci was everyone was terrified of the course because you know people went to become cooks and no everyone was young even if you were raised around wine you didn't know anything about wine so everyone was really terrified uh, very high rate of failure in this class, but uh, because I was on a scholarship, I couldn't fail the class. Um, so I took it very seriously, not because I was particularly interested in wine, I just didn't want to lose my scholarship. So I did pretty well in the class uh, and um, I learned quite a bit, but again, it didn't really go anywhere. It was sort of like, oh, that was really cool to learn. Um, I never thought about wine as a career or even what a career looked like in wine. Um, I was really focused on cooking um, and once I graduated from, from the CIA, I moved to New York, worked in some kitchens and quickly realized that um, what was never discussed in culinary school was um, how poor the pay was for <laughs> graduate. Yeah. And, but I, I really enjoyed it. And then finally, I just didn't, it wasn't, it was no longer economically feasible. I couldn't do it. Um, so I took a job in the dining room because uh, I did have some front of the house training through just sort of side jobs and some things in culinary school. Uh, that sort of gave me enough to be able to get a, like a very basic level job. And I took a job working for actually Tom Colicchio had just opened craft steak down in the meatpacking district when that whole area blew up. Um, and um, about three months and I realized I was like, this is, it was a really young management team. It was very clear to see. And I wasn't getting any guidance. I wasn't learning anything. I was just sort of like 
you know, point, go do that. It was like, the, you're like the bus boy. And I was like, man, I, I, I'm making more money than I was cooking, but I'm still like a bus boy. And like, I'm not okay with that. So, um, I started looking for other opportunities and, um, a friend of mine was working at per se at the time. And she's like, Hey, look, you know, you should at least apply. And I'm like, well, I'm definitely not qualified to work at per se, but screw it. I'll, I'll apply. So I did. And they brought me in for an interview and, um, interview went really well. And I mean, now looking back pretty much what they liked were they liked kids from culinary school who understood food understood cooking techniques and they actually preferred you not to have a lot of experience they sort of mold you into what is a very unique service style you don't come with a lot of bad habits um so i worked at per se who did you work under there like what era was that of per se well uh michael manila was still there um uh raj dakstani was the gm okay uh at the time and um who else well a lot of the guys who were, were was paul roberts the buyer you know i think he did corporate yeah um, jimmy hayes jimmy, was, yeah was the wine director okay uh, ezra eichelberger was one of the head sommeliers was a great yeah. guy yeah that's awesome uh raj um formerly of danielle works with, uh, with paulie was a captain there at the time that's when we met um uh yeah, I mean, there was a, a Jonathan Bindo was a chef. Mm-hmm. A really cool team. I learned Great in a team. North, yeah, in a very short amount of time. Uh, very difficult place to work, but all the great places are. But that's when I started to take a little bit of interest in wine because they had some uh, some wine classes that you can come in. You know, it was sort of like an hour before you're supposed to be, you know, show up for your shift. They would they would teach a wine course, and I would occasionally sit in on those and. You know, and, and they were not necessarily um, crazy in depth. It was about, you know, we would taste a different wine from different villages in Burgundy and talk about them. You know, some ways would be really enamored with a particular producer. So they do a whole class on that. Like we, we had an entire class on um, Domaine Tampier wines. Again, I didn't know where in the world Bandal was, anything about it, but it was really cool to be around these songs. We were very passionate about this, very clearly very passionate about it. Um, and, uh, at the time, you know, Raj was a captain, but he had been a wine director prior at, uh, Gunter Seegers in Atlanta, Georgia. Hmm. Um, but he was a captain there and he was doing a wine service. You know, he always walked around with a bag with like wine books in it. And I just thought it was a very, I'd never seen people in restaurant, like study things like that. That was really cool. Uh, and then I had to, for family reasons, move to DC, but I was very fortunate that Eric Zebald who was the chef of the French Laundry for about 10 years. He was the chef de cuisine there, had just left and opened a place in DC. So I got to sort of stay in the same, under the same, you know, umbrella, you know, philosophically and um, uh, worked at Cities for three and a half years. And that's really where I started to really focus on wine almost exclusively. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric Zeeball was very much like an old school chef who was very wine savvy, had a very large wine collection. Um, he was super knowledgeable and he really supported that culture in his restaurant i think one because he loved it but he also understood the financial benefit of it so uh andy myers was the wine director who now oversees all the wine buying for jose andreas globally um and at that point he had passed his certified he was sort of starting to study for his advanced level exam and i didn't know what a master sommelier was no clue and about six months in he's like hey look we do these tastings you know at night sometimes you know, you can jump in if you want. I didn't know what a blind tasting was. So I just sort of sat there like drinking wine. Going, what are these people doing? So it was very weird to me. Never seen anyone blind taste the wine. Mm-hmm. I thought it was like a hat trick. 
Not not even in your course at the CIA? No, they didn't, they didn't talk about blind tasting at all back then. Um, I mean, you have to remember, like, the quartermaster facilities didn't really blow up in the U.S. until, like, the mid, like, mid-90s it started to take off. But it wasn't really a thing until, like, the early 2000s that it started to really blow up. Um, so, um, but he sort of took me under his wing and, and was like, hey, look, if you really want to learn about wine, like, it's, it's, it can be pretty boring. Um, you have to read a lot. So here are these like books that you need to read. And I was like, okay, he, he saved me the books. Amazon had just really become a thing. So I like, ordered them online. People did, we had just started ordering things online. Isn't that overall. funny to think about that? Yeah, right? Yeah. I remember having like a big desktop in my house, like the whole thing. <laughs> and uh, like moving, like the computer was the biggest right. thing in this big thing. And, right. Uh, so um, I ordered the books and I read through all of them. I mean, there was a big books, like Sotheby's, Wine Bible, mm-hmm. yada, yada, whatever they are. And I came back and I was like, hey, Andy, I, I read all these books. And he's like, Carlton, those are like reference books. You know, they're not like, it's not a novel. Like, <laughs> any one region at a time, you don't read through the whole thing. But I didn't know and I was so enamored by it. And he's like, look, if you can get through that point, like, you'll be fine. You know, and <laughs> they put me on the path to like introducing me what the quartermaster sommeliers was. And even back then, he was like, look, you can do other things, but this keeps me very focused and, and disciplined in studying. So, you know, if you want to go down that path, we already have a group of people who are doing that. You can just jump in. And it was, it was very easy for me to just sort of jump into that little like tasting group culture they already had. And I just, um, it just became like what I did. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And to work in those institutions with those people and, but it does remind me when I was learning Italian and living in Italy, I would read the dictionary, the Italian yeah. dictionary. And people were like, <laughs> what are you doing? It's like when you're excited to learn something. You're like, it has words in it. Exactly. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, you just take it in data, you know, like you just want to learn as much as you can. Um, so what has your experience been like being a person of color in the wine industry? And I'm really curious to know about what it has, what it was like for you earlier on and what you've seen change and what it's like for you now. Obviously, you've been incredibly successful. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah, I, don't, I don't really see it that way. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, work so much. Did you like not hear that. the intro? <laughs> no, but it's, it's different. I, uh, I, I, we'll, we'll talk about it later. I just said your philosophies and these things, but, um, <laughs> Um, you know, initially I was so focused on um, trying to have a viable career that I didn't really think about a lot of things. You're really young, you don't, you don't, you're not, there's not a lot of depth, you know, and maybe you, you don't have time slash don't take the time to really analyze your life and how you feel about things. But I'd say even more so the wine industry was going to college because that was the biggest jump culturally for me was, you know, I was raised in. I was the lightest person within miles. And I mean, my whole school was hundred percent black. My sister and I are the lightest skinned people hmm. around because we were only mixed race kids. I'm half black, half Jewish. My mother's family was uh, Eastern European Jewish family. Hmm. She was very pale skinned, redhead, like, Fine. you know, Eastern European, like, like June. And we just like, we, we, we sit out, but it was the only culture that I knew. And when I went to college, I mean, literally you just imagine we get in the car and I'm there and you get out of the car and you're at the CIA, like on the cliffs of the Hud- you know, Hudson River, and it's really sort of, it's a fairly pretentious environment, very stiff, you know, like it just wasn't, it was a massive culture shock for me. And it was sort of like figure out how to like acclimate and survive or yeah. you're just not going to make it. And I knew it wasn't an option for me not to make it. So you start to acclimate and you don't really think about it then, but it was a very difficult time because, you know, what people forget is, is actually this country 
is, is very diverse. And there are all these little subsets of cultures within the, 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 the country where it's almost like when you leave that, it's almost like being an immigrant. You speak mm. the same language. It's almost all you have in common, right? Like you listen to different music, different movies. The way you speak language is very different. Everything's very different. And I, I stay very positive. I took it as an opportunity to learn uh, about people's cultures and things like that, which I'm still very enamored by. Um, but it was a very difficult time. And by the time I had gotten to the point where I was studying wine, like I had already been lived in that world for six, seven years and I was sort of fine. But, um, you know, I, obviously I, you, you, you notice, you know, that you don't see many people of color in the high end kitchen world or, or wine. Um, so they sort of both have, have similar issues. Um, and yet it's, it's more of a, it's a cultural divide more so than anything else. Like you got, you have to do, um, a lot of explaining of things that like your perspective and things like that. But ultimately the way I look at it now is sort of like you become more like bilingual. You just understand both worlds. And, you know, I was telling people before I went to college and I didn't know that Beatles existed. I had never <laughs> even heard a song or song. I had no clue. Mm-hmm. And when I said that in college, everyone was like, what? It's like, but now I understand this culture and I understand this culture. And it just, it gives me a little bit more context. Um, um, but yeah, I, but I also, I, I am just a little bit wired a little bit differently and I, I just keep going where I understand that psychologically and emotionally, it's very difficult for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, it's something that, that we've, it's not we've just become aware of it. It's just become now there's a, an open platform to discuss it and, and, and be able to start working on, on evolving it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm not by any means comparing this, but I do understand the culture shock of college, and I think you do too. Like, you came from Colorado and went to Minnesota. <laughs> I came from Minnesota, and I went to the East Coast, and everyone yeah. was like, uh, yeah, you know, when I saw fish at, you know, Foxborough, like, they all came, they all went to boarding school. Like, they came from a totally yeah. different world, like, not that much parent involvement, not that much. They were all sent off to boarding school. Like it was, I, I just feel you in the culture shock part. I mean, you, you know, and of course my, I was much more culturally aligned. So I was able to yeah. figure it out, but it, it, it was a, it was a hard time to kind not of. Not me. I feel like know? college, college was my first experience of like over and over again, having a room full of people hate me. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. oh my God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's difficult because up until that point, for the most part, you've been around people who are like-minded. Yeah, you don't like you know we yeah the cultures are completely the same. They eat the same food, think the same way. I mean, it's like politically everything is like the same. You're thrown in a situation where everything's dramatically different. It's very difficult. Well, but it's an important skill to learn, which is to how to uh, try to engage with people who are different. Uh, an opinion, try to understand them. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, to this day, I still have uh, a few friends from college that were um, people that sort of accepted me and, and they're still great friends to this day. They're very different. From a health perspective, I mean, you have worked in restaurants, both back of the house, front of the house. It's, I mean, you know, I think, and we can get into this, I think working at the Nell is such a specific thing because of the seasonality of it. Like it's so intense when it's intense and then you've got two months off twice a year, you know? Um, So given all that, how have you found balance to be, you know, stay mentally healthy, physically healthy 
Well, I'd say, you know, um, it changes all the time. Um, I, I, what I will say is it, it, I never even thought about it once until after I passed master's. Um, again, it was either I didn't have time or didn't want to have time to even think about it. Um, but I lived in that very classic restaurant rotation where it was like, you know, wake up hungover at 10 o'clock in the morning, shower, go straight to work, work until one o'clock in the morning, um, get off, you know, go drinking, smoking cigarettes until, you know, three o'clock in the morning, go home, probably eat some really horrible food, yeah, pass out at like three 30 and then wake back up. And you just keep doing that over and over yes. again. Um, and then I, I did that for a while in between my advance and my master's exam. When I decided to take masters, I had to sort of change that a little bit, but then I just sort of take that same recipe, but then like fit in somehow like four hours a day of studying hmm. and then all my days off studying, but there still was never any real balance. Um, and then when I passed masters, I sort of, it sort of just hit me like, okay, like, um, you should probably start taking care of yourself a little bit. And it wasn't me. Jay Fletcher at the time actually had a conversation with me where he was like, look, you know, like you're young, you, if you want to have a long career and you want to. And to his point, he's like, you want if you want to look like this when you're 60, you know, <laughs> right, right. He's very fit. <laughs> like this, yeah. Like you know, you need to you need to start becoming more physically fit. Which yeah. at that point, outside of like something that was prerequisite for like high school, college, I never worked out in my life. I had no reason to. Um, I didn't particularly like working out, like a lot of people know. And I just set a goal for myself, which was again, you know, I didn't, I didn't start like I was like, I want to run a marathon in a year. I'd never run like ever. Amazing. And, yeah. And I think I, I, my buddy Chubby, who was at, he's still sure. at the now, yeah. a great friend of mine, was like, You're going to do what? I'm like, Yeah, I'm going to run a marathon. He's like, Okay. And I just started running. And I remember my first mile, I went out, I Which ran. Which in Aspen is no small feat. I mean, you're not just yeah, running, you're, like, you're like, yeah. Walking up the stairs. Yeah. Um, I remember running around the block and I felt like my lungs were on fire. I, bet. I, thought, I thought I was like coughing up blood. I was like, You got to be kidding me. But back then, I used to smoke as well. So I'd, I quit smoking the night I passed masters, like cold turkey after like 14 years. Jeez. Um, so it was this whole transformation. And a year later I ran New York marathon. Um, and it was just, it just sort of wanted, it, it proved like, like I could, I could do it. I could work on being physically fit. And it just slowly became a part of my life. You know, I picked up cycling, started riding, uh, riding bikes with Jay and Chubby and, you know, all those guys would come to town, George Hincap and those guys. And they were, it was a really cool community because, you know, here I am, like I can, you know, barely get up the hill, but people like George Hincap were like very supportive and they're like really, and that, that's, what's cool about the cycling community. It was like, they really want more people to take pleasure in the sport and they really support you and push you. So I really got into that, that, uh, community and, and just living in Aspen just became a big part of my life of like being more physically active. And I think that kept me, you know, fairly balanced for the most part, but I wouldn't say it's probably once I came here is when I started thinking about like like mental health and things like that, which again was, it's a very new thing in, in our industry of even like talking about like the impacts of how our industry operates um, in the requirement to, as you sort of grow and what it takes out of you. Um, so I started about a year and a half ago um, seeing a therapist for the first time. And I was just like, it was like trying to do the marathon. It was just as hard. Like, you know what I mean? Like yes. trying to like push yourself to do that because one thing I can say is, as a male, uh, being in the restaurant industry and then from the black community, like we don't really like to talk about or admit any mental health issues, which is very odd because 
we live in a culture where it's fine to take medicine and go to the doctor for anything else, but with mental, it's like this shameful thing. Yeah. Um, so I really started to change my perspective on that. And that has been about as impactful as um, um, the changes I made through, through physical activity. Good for you. That's yeah. amazing. I think everyone should be in therapy. It should be free. Yeah. I mean, if you would solve so many problems in this country <laughs> if everyone had therapy. I'm serious. Yeah. It's not That's the thing. It is expensive. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. No, it's, 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 it's nuts. Now, with that said, I still would not, and I think most people, I've had, I'm not, I don't have a complete balance in my life. That, that whole, <laughs> no, yeah. Like, right. Like, oh, now it's like, it's like kumbaya and everything's <laughs> great. See eight, eight hours a day and I get my meditation in and I, you know, like, no, it's, it's not, but I'm no, also you're not, building a business. Yeah. I don't think I actually, I don't desire traditional balance in my life. I actually don't. Um, I know it's maybe a, uh, maybe a controversial slash weird thing to say, but I really don't. I like pushing myself. I like challenges, um, but you have to have this counterbalance to make sure you don't go too deep. I think that's great. And I think that, you know, I mean, as a mom, I'm supposed to feel like, you know, oh, you know, it's all about being a mom. And it's like, no, I love to work. And I've, it's taken me some time to be totally okay saying that and not feel like that's yeah. bad. So yeah, I think uh, I think it's great to push yourself and have goals, and maybe not, and maybe that doesn't always mean balance, but it's your balance. Correct. Right. Correct. Yeah. And, and that's that's also a very important thing. It's everyone's balance is very different what yeah. they need logically, uh, physically, and I just um, you know I, I I was talking to a friend this morning. I was like, I just know when it's time for me to go, like get some quiet time. I just I feel like I'm like, all right, I need like two days with the cell phone down, no email. I'm going to take this weekend and, and just do it. But you got to be really aware, right? Or you'll yeah. go off the deep end and then you crash. Yeah. yeah. Usually when I start snapping at people, <laughs> that's when I yeah. know. Time, yeah. to, time to put myself in a timeout. I also think everyone has different like cycles or pacing internally. You know, like I'm a really task oriented person. I like to set up a thing that I want to do. And then when it's finished, I take a break. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, we talk a lot about routine and balance as if it's supposed to be the same thing every day, but that's not really true, true. for anyone. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's like, you know, it's it's certain points in your life and even some point, points in your week, you have more balance than not. And life life isn't like this static sort of like, this is just how I live now. It's like you, it goes like this and mm-hmm. you sort of try to ride the wave as much as possible, try to dictate the wave, but life doesn't work that way either. And you just try to go along with it and keep yourself sort of balanced as you go along. Uh, yeah, and things, nothing works out the plan. Em, you, know? <laughs> you know when you're at a party and you just see that woman who seems so super cool, she's empowered, authentic, chic, fun, and she beats to her own drum? I do. That's what Superbird's like. I love Superbird. We originally found these incredible Paloma cocktails through our buddy Richard Betts, who spoke about them on this podcast. Matt and I ordered some last spring and have kept them on hand ever since. It's so easy that they come in a can, but don't sacrifice quality. Superbird is 100% handcrafted blue agave tequila from locally harvested and roasted Mexican agave piñas. It's been granted the official Tequila Blanco 100% puro agave seal and has no added sugars or artificial ingredients. Superbird is sweetened with natural agave nectar and fresh grapefruit juice and mixed with sparkling water. They're also about to release a Superbird Free, where the tequila is aged in oak barrels to take on flavor. It's a tequila soda with grapefruit essence and sparkling water, and it's only 95 calories. 
The labels are amazing, too. They're both beautiful and badass, like Superbird itself. Listeners of our podcast can receive free shipping by using the code FINELINE at checkout on their site, sprbrd.com. That's FINELINE for free shipping at sprbrd.com. We are so excited to announce our involvement with Steamboat Food and Wine Festival, September 23rd to 26th. This is an incredibly fun weekend in charming Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and it's filled with seminars on all matters of food and wine, plus chef-led wine dinners and daily grand tastings and demos. This year, the focus goes from larger, more recognizable brands of wine to smaller boutique and sustainably farmed wines. Steamboat Food and Wine will also be featuring chefs who care as much about locally sourced food as they do. So this year, we'll see people like Mercantile's Alex Sedell and Black Belly's Hosea Rosenberg and many more, plus wine professionals like our dear friend and colleague, Master Som Brett Zimmerman. Steamboat Food and Wine is also doing the WSET Level 1 training at the festival this year. They do offer industry discounts, but encourage both pros and wine enthusiasts to join. We will be interviewing celebrity chefs and wine professionals all weekend live from the festival on our favorite topic, how they balance their love of food and wine with their health. So come on by and please do say hello while you're there. Tickets go on sale May 17th, and our listeners can receive 10% off their tickets using the code FINELINE10 at SteamboatFoodAndWine.com. That's 10% off a weekend you will never forget with the code FINELINE10 at SteamboatFoodAndWine.com. See you this fall. So what has changed for you since being in California? I mean, both for you and what you see in the industry there versus being in Colorado or being on the East Coast? Uh, well, you know, I'm still, I think, getting acclimated here. I think the same thing that I did in Aspen, I did here, which was I didn't really prioritize um, like exploring or traveling around. Like I really wanted to find my place in my work first, which is always I, I love working. I always have. I was raised in that type of household. My grandmother, uh, on top of raising like three grandchildren, had a full-time job and was the pastor of a Pentecostal church. Wow. Yeah. Um, so she just never stopped. And I, um, I was just raised with that being like a, like a normal thing. So I love to work. Um, and I, I, I'm very fortunate that I, I get to work in something I love to do, which I know is rare. Um, and I spent my first year just working. And obviously, I was put in a very unique situation um slash opportunity here um which it, it gave me even more of opportunities just to just like delve really deep into to, to my work and then as i was sort of getting some sense of okay this is what i'm going to be doing COVID hit so i i really didn't have much of an opportunity to see much of california um but you know this you start realizing because of this part of industry i'm in now that they're actually uh, they're 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 almost totally different industries mm-hmm. um it's all sort of connected, um, but it's it's um, it's a different place here than anyone else. Where else I, I've worked, very much so. <laughs> and in what way do you see the differences? I mean, Aspen's so unique, of course, but yeah, um, you know, working in New York and DC, um, that comes with that level of intensity. Yeah, type of people there, which I grew up around. I love that. Thrived in that. Um, Colorado was very very different than that. Um, it was like you said, it was like like all or nothing. Yeah. Well, it was intense. And then when it was dead, it was completely dead, which took me a while to get acclimated That's to that. That's hard, yeah. Um, I know as weird as it sounds, like taking six weeks off every shoulder season was like, I, it was hard for me at first. Like, I'm like, well, these people don't like to work. Like, I almost got a second job. I know right. it sounds like... No, I, yeah. Well, it's really hard because I worked in a ski town in the Dolomites and it's like, yeah. 
you know, you don't get a day off and then you have all this time off and you're like, what do I do with myself? And then right when you get used to that and you've like kind of paced down, it's back to total intensity, nothing for yourself. And it's a certain, like there are people who could never live any other way. For me, yeah. it's a little too intense on both sides. So. Yeah. I mean, in, in Aspen's that way, there are people who go and they never leave. They yeah. love it. Yeah. And that's their routine now. Um, and. Uh, but here it's it's a little bit different. It's um, the type of people that we come in contact with. They, it's it's they they uh, are a unique breed here in California. <laughs> it's it's California is its own country. Culturally. It is agreed. Like people just you know they they are you know we built our own little bubble here. It's called uh, like company culture. But people you know when you talk about like balance quality of life, it is like they're like adamant about it. Yeah. We when we first started, it was really difficult because people really out to like like i'm talking about management level people who are like i'm not showing up before nine o'clock and i will not be here at 501 you know like yeah take a half hour break to an hour break i'm stopping i'm leaving to have lunch so it's just like that was very difficult for me because i was when i first started this job i was commuting from aspen back and forth every week oh, wow. i was working three days in aspen and four days here wow. and I went back for four months i did that i never took a day off and but I was, when I was here, I was in the office at 7 a.m. and I was there till probably seven, eight o'clock. And then I would go to like Charter Oak, grab a burger at the bar, and you know, go back to my hotel, work some more. Like I was grinding, but then like these people were like, What is he doing? You know, like, <laughs> you know, like this you know, isn't necessary. Yeah, it was like unnecessary, but we were trying to build something and, and evolve this, you know, this philosophy for a, large, a greater vision for an enterprise. And it takes a lot of work. So ultimately, like some, you know, we, we had to change the culture and I didn't do it by ever telling anyone they had to work more or tell them not to take a lunch break or anything like that. I just didn't. And there were some people who were really attracted to that and were like, wow, like, this is really cool. Like, like, this is what I want to do. And, and some people really latched onto that and really, you know, started to, you know, we built this really cool culture. Some people were like, nope, I'm out. And they would just quit. <laughs> like, I don't want to work in an environment like that, which I was very supportive of. People get so weird about these things. I'm like, yeah, like you should. I always employees should do what makes them happy. Mm-hmm. If the company culture that we're building, which can be very, you know, entrepreneurial and very intense, that's not for you. Like you should absolutely not work here. Like and that's okay. Like it's not a, it's not a hit on you. It's not a hit on us. It's just they're two different values. Um, but slowly we built um, our own little bubble of people who are really thrilled to work in a company that is like constant like very quickly evolving and growing fast and changing and uh you know uh, uh, just a touch of hectic mixed in there you know and it's really really fun but it's not the norm here people live pretty slowly here it's a very like european style lifestyle like you know everyone it's like it's like yeah it's like a farmer life here um and we have like our own little entrepreneurial spirit in the middle of like farm country (laughs) no offense to all my beloved california friends but i Totally agree. Like having had a business where I dealt with Californians and Europeans, yeah. the Europeans get back to you much more quickly than the Californians. Oh, I mean, like, it's like oh, no yeah. question. So <laughs> I'm like, when the French person is answering you more quick, answering me more quickly, yeah. there's a problem. <laughs> well, so tell us a little bit about what you're building at. Yeah, this. I want to hear yeah. about this company. I mean, it's such a fascinating story. Yeah, so it's it's itching. So we it, it wasn't really intentional. Like come out here to build like for us to build all this and i'll say us it's it's, it's the ownership deal and lawrence and myself we you know we started with height seller i advised them on the purchase of height seller 
as a friend as a sommelier. He was a client at the Nell, I assume, and you kind of knew him that way. Yeah. And we, we started a conversation just talking about the biz, the wine business in general. And, and um, it wasn't like he was like, I want to be in the wine business. He was just intrigued by the business and like, you know, what, what the business is about. And we sort of talked about the different layers of the business, which there are many. And um, as a farming family, he was very intrigued by land ownership, just owning vineyards. And what that was like, he, he loves farming to this day. When we get him here, he spends more time in vineyards than anything else. He grew up on a rice farm. Uh, his family owns a lot of uh, farmland still to today, and that's what he does. And um, the opportunity came up to purchase Heights Cellar, which was um, not only land, but obviously a very historical brand and winery and everything else. And I was like, thrilled because I, I understood the values of the family that I, I thought he'd be a great owner. Obviously, these types of brands, unfortunately, tend to get swallowed up by big VC companies and things like that. Agreed. And private equity groups, which is, um, I, I don't believe that there is often a path to great wine in a publicly traded wine company um, because it's it's an agricultural product. It's not like a spirit uh, where you can just like make it from anywhere. Like it's it, it it you can't you you know wine companies don't run by um, quarterly earnings statements. Right. Um, not not be done well, in my opinion. Um, so we, I was thrilled that he was interested and I said, look, if, if you have the opportunity, you should buy it. And it was more of like for the good of the, the industry in the region, like be good for a private family. And to preserve to- this historical yeah. You know, property. Yeah. Which a lot of people don't do here. They take it and it's like, just slash the history. How do we, you know, move forward? So we purchased it. You know, we, I flew down to Arkansas. He has a home there and he has a big farm there. And, you know, we were all very excited about it. We were drinking some wine. And then he's like, hey, look, you should come out. And I was like, wow, I've actually never been to Heights Cellar. It's always been one of those states that really uh, had very old school, sort of shunned like the, the modern day taste rooms sort of thing. And uh, I said, I'd love to. I actually didn't know anyone who had ever been there, to be honest with you. I said, Good point, yeah. And I came up and it was incredible. I mean, you drive up Taplin Road, which is a very historical road where it's Joseph Phelps, um, Heights and Snowden's up on the hill. Mm. Oil of Vineyard for Bond is up on that hill. It's one little valley there, um, offshoot of the, the, the main valley. And you go up, and this is old historical road, and the estate's very, you know, old historical big stone cellar. And we tasted the wines, and it was just a really, it was a really great feeling to be there because um, it wasn't like this big, flashy, like monstrosity of a building. It was, you know, it's a very classical place. There's still a family home on the estate. And I was like, look, Galen, this is really exciting, so forth and so on. And then we started to talk about, I met with, the, the team there and a couple of people who just joined. And um, afterwards he's like, look, you know, if you were to own Heights, what would you, what would you do with it? And I uh, put it in writing. I sent him an email and I didn't hear back from him. And he called me. He's like, Hey, look, would you like to come back out to Napa? I was like, well, yeah. I'm like, man, this is like turned out to be a pretty good deal. You know, I, uh, <laughs> every couple months I get to go spend a weekend long weekend in Napa, hang out and drink wine. This is great. And he had voiced some sort of concern from the current management team that they were trying to take the estate in a very different direction than um, what I had sent him, like, you know, like, you know, modernizing the style of Cabernet, putting tons of more on like white wines, like just really like taking it down that lane. And I was like, Galen, you cannot. I was like, this will destroy your entire investment. And more importantly, like this is the opposite of what I thought would happen if family owned it. And he's like, yeah, I don't want this. So 
um, that team were, were let go. Um, because frankly, Galen's a trust guy. And if you can't, if he, he doesn't trust your, what you have in your heart, then it just doesn't work out because, you know, Galen is, uh, invested in a lot of industries and he doesn't personally oversee any of them. He has people who oversee all of them. So he needs to trust when he's out there that things are going the right way. So, um, we left, went back and he called me and says, Hey, look, how about you come on and do all that stuff you you put in that email? Uh, that's pretty much how it went. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think, no, yeah, I don't, I don't really, uh, I'm, I'm very happy where I am. And he said, okay. And then we sort of kept going back and forth. And finally, um, you know, we, uh, we came to an understanding. It's really interesting. And I don't know why I said it. I just said it because it was the way I felt, but I told him, I says, well, Galen, if it's just high seller, I'm going to be really bored really fast. And he laughed. He's like, but you should never run a winery. I was like, sure, but I'm going to learn it very quickly. And within like two years, I'm going to be bored. And he just laughed. He's like, okay, well, how about this? We can grow as fast um, as opportunities come and you're able to do it. I said, okay. And within six months of me being at Heights, we um, went into contract for our first venue. In that first deal, he knew that I had never done anything like it before. And I was like, hey, look, I'm gonna, I want to be in the room for every meeting. Um, I want to overhear everything. You guys just run it and I'm going to observe and I'm going to run the next one. He's like, okay. So I literally, like I took notes. They were saying anything in these meetings I never heard. I was like, I go home, like, Google everything, <laughs> like, it, and, like study how the transactions go and things like that. And I learned everything in that, in that, in that first deal. Now, every deal is very different and they, you learn as you go along. It's just every, everything is unique. Um, but the next deal we bought was that for that first one was the Wildwood Ranch, which was the old historical ranch that, um, uh, Spring Mountain used to own. Um, so all the Spring Mountains from the 60s and 70s and very early 80s were all sourced from, from this ranch in Rutherford. Uh, early vintages of Frogsley um, from John Williams were also sourced from this ranch because John Williams was the winemaker at Spring Mountain um, for a number of years. Uh, so I knew the history of this place and I was like, wow, this is really cool. We get to, to own this. Um, and then it was the, ha- the Haynes Vineyard uh, down in Coombsville. Which, uh, John Lockwood um, from Enfield. That's how I knew that wine. I knew Tula K as well, very old school producer. Um, so I ran that deal, which we turned into a brand, Nico Cuevo, formerly of Costa Brown, makes those wines for us. Uh, he's an absolute rock star um, and, and a really, really great guy. Um, and then we, um, uh, we decided that we wanted to do something that gave, you know, we have a really young winemaking team for the type of states they're running, especially at Heights. I really wanted to keep Brittany. I didn't want her to leave. She, we inherited her from the, the Heights family. Um, and uh, she knew how to make Heights wine. Um, and I didn't want to lose her, but I, I know like, I, I knew she would get bored. So we created another brand called Brindell, which we'll be releasing actually uh, next week. And it was named after the gentleman who sold Joe his first vineyard. Uh, and where our tasting room was on 29. That was all uh, Leon Brindell's winery. So he sold that to Heights. Now it's his first venture into the wine industry on his own, him and Alice Heights. Um, so we named the brand after him. And it's all like really fresh, vibrant wines the Napa Valley. We do like a sparkling granulino. Um, there's wow. Cabernet Sauvignon that uh, is aged in these 60-year-old um, um, redwood and American oak uprights for a year. No new, new oak. Really fresh, really vibrant. Uh, a couple of fill blends like Portuguese red varietals that we had on the, the ranch. Uh, I mean, just a really, really fun break. Gives them an opportunity to play. And then we'll start sourcing from other places around California as well. It gives them a creative um, outlet to, to to play a little bit. That's not just like making like very age-worthy, classically structured cabinet, which 
as great as that is, and they're very honored to run those estates, it can get boring doing the same thing over and over again. Sure. Right? Especially Americans, like we need some stimulus. So, so we created that brand. And then we uh, were really fortunate to buy from the Heights family, the Inquiry Ranch, which um, had really never been, nothing had ever been done with it. It's, it's, it was initially planted in the 1880s. Um, um, it was started as an agriculture area in the 1870s. They planted vines in the 1880s. And then Pro- Prohibition just killed all of it, got wooded over again. In 1989, uh, the Heights family bought it and then replanted it over the next two years. And they just pretty much sold the fruit. Um, so we uh, canceled all the contracts, we reclaimed the vineyard, and we hired Matt Taylor. Um, he was um, he was at Joseph Swan initially, uh, and then went to work for Jeremy at Dujac um, for a couple of years, and then came back, worked for the Araujo family at Isley, nice. uh, and then has his own wines called Matt Taylor Wines, and then we brought him on to make the wines at, at Inkrate. Um so we have that. Um, and then uh, we have a really interesting project uh, that Nico is working on right now, which is a bit of an experimental project from uh, a much larger venue that we have in Rutherford. That is really, we hired Brenna Quigley to do all the uh, soil analysis. And it's a really geologically diverse site in, in Rutherford. So he's doing some soil specific uh, ferments for us to sort of see how those progress, which will be its own state as well. So that's very um, cool. Yeah. Um, and then we purchased, um, we were honored to purchase Burgess Cellars, which was, uh, you know, it was a very small historical family-owned winery that was previously Souverain Cellars. Uh, it was owned by Lee Stewart. He started in the 40s uh, and ran it until uh, the very early 70s, 71. And he sold Souverain, which is now Chateau Souverain. He sold it to Pillsbury in 1971. Oh, funny. And Pillsbury took the brand, but sold the hard assets, the vineyard, to in the winery to uh, Tom Burgess and became Burgess Cellars in 1972, which I had always drank a lot of those older wines, uh, actually from Eric Zebal when I was at mm-hmm. City's End. And he would he would pull those wines all the time, wines from the 70s and early 80s. And we were really, really excited to, to be able to, to buy that at State. So we purchased Burgess uh, and then it burned down two weeks later. In oh, the fire. God. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was a very interesting uh, month, uh, dealing with that in the middle of COVID. So sorry. Um, yeah, it was sort of like one thing after another. But, you know, it's one of these things, it's life's about acceptance. My dad used to say, you wake up in the morning, the winery is not there. It's not there. <laughs> what are you going to do it? You know, like, that's it. Um, so we're, we're dealing with that. And then in the middle of that, the opportunity came um, to bring Stony Hill into the family that's, as well. Yeah. Uh, literally two months after Burgess. Um, and, uh, for Burgess, we hired, uh, Megan Zobeck, who's incredible. Uh, Megan was actually, she worked for the Denver Broncos doing, uh, contracts for a long time and then jumped over to the wine industry, ended up, uh, working at Screaming Eagle and then, uh, for, uh, Melco for a number of years and then her, had her own, um, natural wine brand called Inconto Wines and then left that venture and then joined us to be the head winemaker at, at, at Burgess Cellars to bring that historical estate up to date and then um we purchased stony hill and then hired jamie motley of jamie motley wines um to, to oversee that estate and interesting enough jamie is married to nico cuevo oh funny um so we went from one estate to seven in two years um god was, that's bananas and then on top of that we started a company called uh domain estates uh domain estates is was completely modeled after a negociant as a business model. 
Um, so we purchase wines from estates and represent them uh, globally from the U.S. and also started to build uh, an import portfolio as well. We just hired on uh, Falana Bouvier. Um, she was uh, one of the top executives for RNDC um, for a number of years. She's an absolute rock star. Um, and she is leading that team now. Um, and just incredible to watch her intensity level and uh, knowledge base. She's like a machine. It's, uh, she's been a pleasure to work with. So she's the president of that company for us. So It sounds like you have a lot of uh, women that are winemakers for you, which is awesome. Do you think about diversity a lot, um, gender and otherwise, when you're doing when you're making your hiring decisions? Is that something that's important to you for this growing company? Um, I, I, it, what I'd say is obviously, you know, diversity both in gender and in, in, in race are important. Um, and what I, what, I, what I will say is I would never hire someone because of their gender, their race, um, mainly because I think it would be an insult to them. Like I would never want anyone to, to, to hire me because of, uh, you know, my race or anything else. Um, they're just, you know, a lot of the winemakers we, we hired were um were the people i like in my mind envisioned making those wines and i just like aggressively went after them like mm-hmm. they were, you know and they just like happen to be a lot of women and we yeah we have i think three three females two males one homosexual yeah i mean it's a mixed bag of, of winemakers for our, our team um and yeah it was never with an intention of, like i need a female winemaker but just like that person is like who i want making these wines who happens to be a female it turns out that way. Um, but yeah, um, I, I'd say because I, you know, I was raised in a, uh, I was raised by a woman, um, very, very strong black woman. I never, I didn't, I never came with this uh, notion that women were ever like not capable of something that, that a man is. And I think that's, that's something that is like is learned. It's a learned belief. Right. Um, I just never learned that because my grandmother literally was the, the most capable hardworking person I, I had ever known. Yeah. So, it was just to me I, it, it was never a block like oh maybe this woman couldn't do this like it just never crosses my mind i don't i never i've never seen that way i, I don't understand how where that belief system comes from um yeah and i again it, it was never like that was never like a strategy or an intention it just sort of happened that way because they were the people i really wanted to hire to make the lines um but ultimately it is important uh representation is incredibly important um psychology is very powerful so People who are, whether it's a female or a person of color, they see someone like them doing something, they're more likely to believe that they can do it. Mm-hmm. I think it just makes for a much more exciting industry. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the Roots Fund. I mean, I mean, when I'm, my head's kind of spinning from the business. <laughs> I mean, it's just like world domination, ultimately. Uh, yeah, no, it's just... <laughs> In a good way. I, um, I think that my ADD is like probably my greatest benefit because I have the ability to like cold, hard, stop one thought process and jump over yeah. and commitments lead to this other thing, you know? Yes, uh, I do. No. So the roots fund, uh, <laughs> it's, it was well, sometimes it's an issue, but, um, so the roots fund came out of, uh, really like what uh, I think a lot of Americans were doing, um, last year, which is like analyzing whether you've done your part to, try to have a positive impact on society and the world we live in. And I had to be honest with myself and said, you know, I've been given a lot of opportunities, but I hadn't personally provided a lot of opportunities for my community. And I was like, well, let me do something about that. So, um, you know, I got on a call with um, Tahira Habibi and Akeem Yabos 
And I was talking about like, look, there isn't really an organization that that focuses on this. And I'm not in, in but not in like a a front sort of way, like a really like thoughtfully structured organization that looks at the needs of the community from a realistic perspective, not idealistic, but like realistic and and, and with hard goals of like like this is what we want to achieve. And we pretty much came up with these sort of pillars of, of, you know, educating the communities on what the potential career paths are in the wine industry, which, you know, we take for granted because we know most people don't know how to have a career in wine, like, even mm-hmm. if they were interested. Like, what are those paths? And then once they show interest, we try to make, make sure that they um, have access to opportunities in education to give them the qualifications they need. So, you know, in some cases, that's college, full college scholarships. In some cases, it's, it's these small continuing education classes. It's MS, it's W, you know, WSAD, MW program. It's, you know, it's internships, things like that. Whatever it is, you know, we give them the opportunity to gain the education requirements to get the job. And then, you know, we use what is, you know, commonly used in every industry, which is your personal connections, relationships, and influence to get them in the room, right? I mean, people get hired every day on that. I would say most jobs are never actually listed. Like mm-hmm. it's like hire a friend of a friend of a friend. And what happens is that really cuts out a, a large demographic of people in the country. Um, so we try to get them in the room, but they've got to get the job, right? Our, our goal is just, you know, once they walk in that room, that they're fully qualified to get a position and it's up to them to, to sort of nail it. Um, and uh, so I, but I'd never run an organization like this, to be honest with you. I didn't know anything about the nonprofit world. And uh, I knew that I didn't have time to, but I was very passionate about being a part of it and building it so that it was legitimate. As I, um, you know, the last year had weighed heavy, heavy on me, like the value of life and how much of it we waste with bullshit, frankly, mm-hmm. and are not real and, you know, a lot of fluff. I just, I would rather not do something than do something that is fluff. Um, and I said, if we're going to do this, it needs to be real and it needs to be long term. It needs to be something that's still around in 20 years, you know? And that's what, what I wanted to be a part of. So I called my friend Akimi Dubose, who is a rock star. And she had, she was not in the wine industry at all. And, um, uh, and I called her, I said, look, I got this idea. <laughs> and I've been talking to my friend to hear about it. And she's very interested. And she has a huge site. It's a cool platform. She's already doing incredible work. And, um, you know, Akimi and I both uh, gained our scholarships to culinary school through this program called the CCAP. From, so we knew what it meant for someone to sort of give you a chance from a very poor neighborhood. Um, and so and she had done some consulting work for nonprofits. You know, she'd worked on Capitol Hill with Nancy Pelosi and dealing with food systems and yada, yada. So she got it. And I gave her the idea. She said, all right, let me, let me mull it over. And she came back. She's like, look, I think it's, it's, it could, this thing had legs, but I don't really know much about the wine industry. I'm like, great. Well, I can teach you that. Uh, but I need someone who can sort of run with this thing. So she literally just took it, ran with it, you know, got everything set up, all the legal, everything. And, and, you know, we were really fortunate to get some uh, early seed money to get it started from um, actually from Marvin Schenken, who was a friend. And, mm-hmm. and I got on the phone and talked through it. And he's like, look, Carlton, I, I believe wholeheartedly what you're doing. It's a necessity in this industry for us to have a future in this country. Um and, um, you know, Marvin likes entrepreneurial energy uh, on a, on a, in a big way because he's that way. And he's like, I, you know, he's like, I, looking at what you, you've done in your career, he's like, I believe that if I put my money in this thing, it's going to turn into something. So um, he gave us the money to get the organization really started amongst a couple other people. He wasn't the only one. 
and the amount of money and, and scholarships she's been able to raise, like her, has been exceptional. I mean, we've we haven't even been in operation for a full year. It's coming up on a year. Uh, we've given out almost forty scholarships, wow. uh, full operating mentorship program. Um, um, you know, he. Um, you know, this year we're sending our first interns to uh, to Europe, uh, uh, doing a couple internships in Burgundy, in Piedmont. Um, we got two full scholarships to. Uh, the Burgundy School of Business to do their master's programs. I mean, it's been like very intense and it's it's been really fulfilling. I mean, where I've personally benefited from uh, this is, um, you know, I've been able to bring a number of candidates into our enterprise, into our family and uh, create opportunities for them. But, you know, for me personally, it's it's not a, not Valley is not the most culturally diverse place, um, <laughs> to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. So you sort of become hungry to, to, you know, have that bit of community, which I, I was missing for a long time. So it's been really fulfilling. I mean, last night I had a number of these guys over for dinner and, um, you know, it's been great for them. It's been great for me. And it's just been really cool to create that community here in Napa. Um, and they're really enthusiastic. They love living in Napa Valley. They love their work. Um, and I think it's been, it's been very reciprocal. Um, so, uh, what I will say is Akimi is the one who runs it myself to here. We sit on the board, um, we're, uh, making some announcements soon. We've got a couple other really cool board members who are, uh, who are jumping on, but it's been great to see like, um, you know, that it's going down the path from what I wanted from the beginning, which is like, to, it is something that is completely legitimate in making a, a major impact in a very, very fast order. Um, and that's, that's a testament to Akimi's work. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 Congratulations. That's yeah. no small feat. Yeah. It's a lot of fun though, huh? <laughs> Luckily you don't have anything else going on. So <laughs> that's a cr- incredible. Good for you. Yeah. So tell us about, I mean, that was already something I feel really excited about, but what's something that you feel excited about for the future, either personally or professionally? Um, I don't think about personal very much just because um, I always figure that stuff takes care of itself. <laughs> Like, if you just sort of surround yourself with people who are like-minded, like, you'll be okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I get a couple workouts a week. I'm okay. But uh, professionally, you know, I um, I was talking to um, my team yesterday. and I was talking about how essentially I've always just by nature lived in these worlds professionally where you sort of create a little bubble of people who um, are like-minded and build your own culture. And that started very early on in kitchens where I worked, then in dining rooms, things like that, like, you know, when I worked at Citizen, like we were this, we were uh, a four-star restaurant in a union hotel in DC, which at the time was not a very relevant food town. It was starting to get there, but it really wasn't. And our, um, our we created this culture. It was a bubble. I mean, we, we, it was a five night a week dinner only restaurant. So we worked every shift together on the weekends. We all hung out together. We literally, like I had no friends outside of that, mm-hmm. that, that bubble. And it wasn't intentional. It was just, we were so like-minded. We loved hanging out together so much that we created this little family. And a lot of, you know, restaurant industry employees are very transient. So, you know, very few people have family around. I have family there, but I was a rare breed. I mean, no one else had family there. So we all hung out together. And I love that we're sort of creating that here. Um, A lot of our winemakers are not really from the Napa Valley, like professionally, even if they had like one little job in there. So to be able to create our little bubble here where people are allowed to um, hold true to like very particular farming principles and winemaking styles that there's a reason why we hired them 
uh, and they feel safe in that, that, you know, if they don't get a score that, you know, is they're not going to get fired and things like that, you know, like that's rare here. So um, to me, I love building teams. I love building companies where you let really um, passionate, artistic, creative entrepreneurial people like thrive to me is really exciting. And, and I, that's what we're building here. Um, people who just love really vibrant, you know, elegant, nuanced wine. Um, they care a lot about the environment and impact that our industry has on the environment. And the level of conversation we're having is a little bit different. Like yesterday, we got in like a really like 30 minute heated debate about uh, sustainable like glass production and where we're sourcing glass from. That was a real conversation. It went on and on for a while. And, you know, I was like, wow. And I just sort of, as passionate where I was sitting back, I was like, wow, like I built a company where people care about where our glass comes from. You know, like it's not just like, where's the cheapest or where's the heaviest bottle? And it's like, no, like how do they produce glass? You know, it was like a question like, like, you know, someone accidentally tilled like one of the blocks in at Stony Hill and like Jamie was pissed. Cause like, that's like, no, that's not what we do. And I was like, wow, that's, you know, that's the, like the little bubble that we want to create. And it's just really awesome to see. It's like confirmation that you're creating um, the world you want to live in, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not in any way uh, meant to say that anyone else who's doing something different is doing something wrong. Uh, I don't believe in that. You know, I think people often, because the American mind can, and culture can be so combative and um, sort of white or black, um, you know, um, people often think if you're doing something that means that you've not discounted what the other person is doing. And I actually don't, that's not how we operate. Um, you know, because I like doing it this way and making wine that tastes like this and, and smells like this and looks like this does not mean that what you're doing is wrong. It just means that like, this is what I want to do. Um, and you know, we, while we're building our culture, we're also trying to find where our place is in the Valley. Um, and to, to be able to connect, as many people as possible but for right now it's, it's sort of like this this bubble that's that we've created and everyone's very supportive of each other and while each one of our estates runs completely independently which is very unique for the napa valley uh, t- typically people just try to consolidate as much as possible um, it is cheaper to run businesses that way for sure um, but what you know while you you can count the money you save what you can't count is the money you lose from um, losing identity and that's why we have every winery has its own winemaker and a state director. They run complete, they're complete separate financial philosophical entities. And we let each little group run their own winery. And I just sort of oversee all the teams to make sure they're supported and that they stay on track. Um, and it's been really great to empower young people who would have never been hired for these jobs. Um, you know, Eric uh, Elliott, who's our state director at Heights was, um, you know, a floor saw him at the mill with me for about five years and I brought him over and now he literally runs Heights. I go to Heights maybe once a week for a quick, I don't even work. I don't, I haven't worked at Heights in a year. Um, and he's him and Brittany are running it. And now you have this, you know, Eric is, I think he's 30 and Brittany, I think is 30 as well, running this really big historical estate and they're killing it. And to me, I, I love that, like creating opportunities for these people and just sort of let them go. That's great. Yeah. Liz and I will be sending you our resumes. <laughs> exactly. This whole time I'm like, huh. <laughs> Tell me more. Import portfolio, huh? Um, well, thank you so much. I know we know how busy you are. We especially know how busy you are now. So um, it really meant a lot to talk to you. You were one of the first people on our list. And so it's great that we're finally making this work and uh, super exciting to hear what you're doing. I mean, obviously we get 
used to get to see you when you were at the Nell, and so we've missed you. So it's been really nice to to catch up. I, you know, I miss Colorado. Um, it's um, Colorado's a very special place. It is, yeah. And uh, whether in Aspen or, or or in Boulder specifically, those are the two places I spend the most time. Um, there's just there's a there's a sense of community in these places that that is like like these networks that you just sort of um, I, I miss that so. Well, and I really appreciate you also uh, mentioning going to therapy for the last year and a half because I think it's important for people to hear that like you can just go and talk to someone and you know it doesn't have to be something that's shameful. There's, there's, I think it, it may have been the single most impactful thing I've ever done. Wow. My perspective on life, on myself, the, the way I interact with people. Literally, if I ever say, it's like, what is the most, more than any master sway, any job, any of that, like going to therapy, it's like you, it's, it's almost like you, you like you're in this, I would say a dark room, but a dim room. And, and someone just opens like a window and like, oh, it's really sunny out there. Like it just changes your perspective. And, what it does is it puts you on a journey of uh, analyzing your life and the world around you and taking a little bit more control over the decisions you make in the sense of how it affects your life, like that you don't become a victim of the things around you anymore. You start deciding how you want your life to be. Yeah, exactly. Very different perspective. Yeah, that's great. Oh, well, thank you so much, Carlton. Thanks a lot. Say hi cool. to Eric and anyone else we know out there. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Yes, please do rate and review. And if you do want to support the podcast, you can head to our website, finelinepodcast.com. <laughs> if I remember correctly. And click on donate. There are lots of different ways to support. Thanks so much. I'm Kathy Hoya from A Balanced Glass, a community platform dedicated to wellness in the wine industry. I'm here to bring you a short mindfulness exercise in collaboration with The Fine Line. Enjoy! Motivation and why we do what we do in the wine world. That's one of my takeaways from listening to Carlton on the podcast this week. Sometimes, as we heard from Carlton, we're motivated to get into wine because working front of the house pays better than working in the kitchen. Sometimes, as it was for me, We get into wine because someone took the time to line up a few bottles and a few empty glasses on a bar after hours and talk you through them one at a time. Sometimes the motivation to get into wine is simply because we like to drink it. I love all of those reasons and the others I've heard about what motivates us to get into wine. This week, I'd like to take the next step and get a little curious about the difference between why we got into wine in the first place and why we're still into wine now. Let's pause for a moment and think about that, about motivation and wine and our place in its world. Let me give you a few quiet moments to consider your responses to these prompts. I got into the wine world because, and then I'm in the wine world now because. Again, quietly considering for yourself, I got into the wine world because, and then I'm in the wine world now because. Go ahead and answer those questions for yourselves. Maybe you're noticing that the motivations are really quite similar, or maybe noticing that one of the two motivations was about love and one of the two was about paying the bills. Or maybe noticing the simplicity that came to mind, like, I got into the wine world because someone was nice to me. 
or I'm in the wine world now because it's been so long that I don't know how to do anything else, or I got into the wine world to prove a point, or I'm in the wine world now to escape. Whatever it is for you, just noticing this experience and the difference between the two. Thank you for joining me on this. See you next time.